This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. When Nandan Nilikani was the CEO of Infosys, one of India's top IT and outsourcing firms, he often found himself being forced to answer questions not just about his company, but also his country. Sometimes, global business executives who visited the company's sprawling campus in Bangalore would raise issues to which Nilikani had no answer, such as, quote, Why does Infosys have such a beautiful campus, but also large slums in other parts of the city? End quote. So when Nilikani decided to write a book, unlike other CEOs who write about their favorite leadership or management theories, he chose India as his subject. In Imagining India, the idea of a renewed nation, Nilikani tackles themes ranging from education and demographics to investment and infrastructure. Nilikani, who was recently recruited by Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh to head a project to create a national identification card for the country, spoke with India Knowledge at Wharton about the book at the recent Wharton India Economic Forum in Philadelphia. Thank you very much, Anjani, for that very kind introduction. Uh, Nandan, welcome to uh, Wharton India Economic Forum. Very happy to have you here. Thank you, Mukul. It's great to be here. Uh, so before we start talking about your book, which is 531 pages, we'll try and cover it in 20 minutes. Uh, I just wanted to tell you a small incident that happened the first time that I visited Infosys. I had come to meet one of your colleagues. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the week before I came to Bangalore, I was in Bombay where my mother lives. And one day as I was walking about at night, I stepped into a pothole and I fell down. And as you know, I'm not a very light guy. So I, I fell on my hands and fractured my wrist. All right. So when I came to Infosys and met your colleague, he saw that I had a cast on my right hand. He said, what happened to you? And I said, I fractured my wrist. How did that happen? So I said, I think it happened because the world is not flat. (laughs) I asked him to pass on that message to you. I don't know if he did. Oh, he didn't mention it. All right. All right. Anyway, uh, from uh, Thomas Friedman's book to your book, uh, I I, I, I should start by saying that I I really, really enjoyed it very much. Oh, that's great. Uh, But I was very curious about one thing. You know, when normally when company CEOs or chairmen or co-chairmen write books, they tend to write either about their biggest deals or they write about their perspective on management theory or philosophy. You wrote a book about India. Why? Well, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. And, uh, you know, my role in the last several years has been going around the world and uh, uh, you know, projecting India in, in global forums and all that. And, uh, you know, I was not able to answer a lot of questions that people would ask me. They'd ask me, why, why is it that you have uh, such beautiful campuses like Infosys and such large slums? Why is it that there are so many billionaires and so many poor people? Why is it that uh, you have all these educated people in technology and the world's largest illiterate population? You know? Why is it that you, you guys seem to coexist in the 17th century and the 21st century at the same time. So that's all, and I was not able to give very convincing answers. So I felt I needed to get down to the bottom of why, why, why are we the way we are. The other important thing I felt was that uh, uh, India was 
you know, at a very small window of opportunity. It had this huge demographic dividend and this young population. But, uh, you know, that demographic dividend could well become a demographic disaster if we didn't make the right investments in our human capital. And I felt that window of opportunity was ebbing by. So I felt the need to put it down and say, hey guys, you know, we have this beautiful opportunity, let's not mess with it. And also I found that a lot of books on India were written from a particular perspective, an eco economist's view or a sociologist's view. I felt that to really get, give India its due, you had to take a much more holistic look at it, which is why I, I looked at it from all these angles. I interviewed 126 people, wow. uh, including people from ICICI Bank. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it, it's really a sort of a composite of all that. Right. Well, uh, well, it clearly shows. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about the introduction is you say that the most important driver for growth lies in expanding access to resources and opportunity, as you just said. Now, what do you see as the major barriers that block this access for millions of Indians, and how do you think they can be removed? Well, one, one clear barrier to access is education. I mean, if, if you, you know, the opportunities for somebody, say, who lives in Bangalore and goes to an English medium school and goes to IIT is dramatically different from a young child in a Bihar village who doesn't have a school in his village. And therefore, access to education and providing good education in the public space is really very important. Second is access to English. You know, we have really practiced very hypocritical policies on English. We have denied English to our people, and uh, therefore, uh, they have not learned English. And English has become the language to participate in the global economy. Or it's access to roads. You know, if you, if you live in a village and you need to go, to go to school, you need to have a road to go to school. Or you need lights at night to study. Very simple things. So if you deny people these basic instruments of education, health, infrastructure, jobs, then you are bound to deny them access to building a better life. I think I, I agree with you completely. You know, knowledge at Wharton is a Chinese edition. And uh, once when I was in China, I, I met somebody there who has a very fast-growing business teaching the Chinese English. Mm -hmm. uh, I was happy to know he was a Wharton alum. Good. Uh, the, uh, uh, well, uh, coming back to the phrase you used the, uh, early, a little earlier, the, the demographic dividend, uh, it's very interesting that in the 60s, the, the India's population was seen almost as a burden. Mm -hmm. uh, but now you use the term human capital yeah. uh, you know, to, to, to describe uh, India's population. Uh, how do you think that uh, the, Democrat, uh, the demographic dividend divides across the country? Is, is it in the same pace or are yeah, there regional I think, uh, differences? There are three or four things here. One is that uh, you know, we have you know, a demographic dividend is typically a point in a country's history when the bulk of its population is in the working age of 15 to 65. Right. And therefore, they have a very low dependency ratio. In other words, they support less people and have more people to work. And that's typically the golden age of any nation because you have more people working, you have more creativity, and so on. And India is very fortunate to be having its demographic dividend now. And it's the only country in the world which will have its demographic dividend. So it's not only a young country with a dividend, it's a young country in an aging world, which opens up even more strategic possibilities. Uh, but actually, India's demographic dividend is not one curve. There are two curves. There's one curve which was in the south and the west of India, which is almost fully absorbed. By 2015, the south and the west will start uh, aging. And there's a second curve which is in middle India, the central states of UP, Bihar, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, all, uh, Madhya Pradesh. And that is going to be the real demographic, the next, the next demographic bubble. So unless we address very fundamental issues in that region of education and access and all that, 
that, that's really going to be a big challenge because today you see, for example, so many problems of uh, migrant workers coming to Mumbai and, and the reaction to them. What you're seeing is really a small part of what will happen if we don't address this very quickly. Because in the years from 2001 to 2025, only 12.6% of the new population in India is going to be in the south. 50% is going to be in the northern states. So there's a huge you know, difference because fertility rates in Kerala today are like a West European country. You know, it's one third of what it is in Uttar Pradesh. So we have to understand these nuances of what's happening to really think of what we need to do. And how do you think the second bubble can be addressed? You know, it has to be addressed by expanding access to that young population. Uh, it, it's about, you know, improving the quality of schooling. It's about better infrastructure. It's about job creation there as opposed to job creation by migration. And, uh, you know, all these things, we don't have much window. We have a window of maybe four or five years to pull it off. Right. Because otherwise, the pressure of uh, the disparities will, will go up even further. Right. You know, very much like the issue of the population where there's almost been a sea change uh, in the way the country has thought about this issue, mm -hmm. uh, which you address in the first part of your, of your book. Uh, the other issue like that, I felt, was the, the assumption that was made soon after independence that India needs uh, democratic socialism. You know, and and you, you say in your book that there has been a similar transformation in that thinking with much more accept, acceptance yeah. of sure. business-friendly policies and, and, and capitalist policies. Uh, but now when you come to a place like the U.S. and you look at the mess that's going on out here, mm -hmm. and people talking about nationalizing banks like Citibank and Bank of America, do you think this is the kind of capitalism? What kind of capitalism does India Well, I think the, the message in that is that, uh, you know, I think what, what, we need to find the right balance between markets and the regulated society. Because if you have markets which are unregulated and untrammeled, and then they, it can lead to a situation where they create you know, the kind of challenges we have in the US. And then you have the reaction to that which you are seeing today. So I think the, the challenge is to find the right balance. And I think uh, India has the opportunity to find the right balance because we had veered too much to, to one side. It doesn't mean that we to veer too much to the other side, but stri strike the right juxtaposition of uh, entrepreneurship, business, and the markets. Because at the end of the day, you need market forces and entrepreneurs to create jobs, to create innovation, to create new products and services, to improve productivity, to improve the quality of life, and so on. So you, know, you can't do that with the state. But you need the state to create a regulatory and other frameworks and rule of law to ensure that businesses play within, within the same playpen. So I think that's the message from what's happening here. And I think in India, India is very fortunate that it has, I believe, the largest array of entrepreneurs anywhere in the world except the US. You know, we have uh, large companies uh, in, the, uh, in the family sector, we have large companies in the public sector, we have large global companies, and we have thousands of young entrepreneurs. Right. So it's a very diverse and rich uh, base that we need to take advantage of. Right, no, absolutely. Uh, the other really fascinating part of your book uh, that I found was how you talk about the, the impact of technology in transforming different industries, mm -hmm. and also the growth of India's IT sector uh, in providing IT services and BPO services to the world. Now, amid all this success story, along comes Satyam, which probably happened after your book was done. Sure. What sort of an impact no, has I, that I had? I think Satyam is a specific case of fraud. It happened to be somebody who was in the IT sector. 
right. who also got into some real estate activities. So right. it was a case of fraud. Yeah. Now, I don't think it anyway takes away from the enormous uh, success of what technology has done to Indian economy and society. Right. Now, Tom Friedman, in the blurb to your book, calls you the great explainer. What I'm, what I'm hoping you will explain to me, because I don't understand, is, is how such a huge fraud could go on for such a long time. Uh, and, and when you talk to your clients, do they see this as an isolated instance, or is Indian business being tarred? No, no, I, I think uh, absolutely it's seen as an isolated instance, because uh, it's a case of one, uh, one uh, entrepreneur going errant. And I think, uh, I think it's, I guess it's all part of what happens in, 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 in a bubble in some sense. I mean, Bernie Madoff, $50 billion scam, nobody seemed to know about it. And some very, very influential and knowledgeable people seem to have put money there. So, you know, it's difficult to say where, where you draw the line on these things. Right. So I think uh, it was uh, an unfortunate episode because we have been trying to project India's entrepreneurs as the new face of India. And this, uh, this incident, you know, took us back because the whole argument was predicated on the statement that these were, you know, good, honest entrepreneurs. So it was definitely a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of setback for the Indian image you want to build. But it's definitely very much uh, an isolated instance. I think, uh, uh, you know, we, we have excellent companies today in India which are... And I think the technology story is huge because, you know, people tend to see the technology story as the stuff which is to do with outsourcing which is a huge achievement. But how technology has been used within the country is an equally compelling story. I mean, the fact that you have an election coming up next month with 700 million voters and 1.1 million voting machines, which are all electronic. There's no other country in the planet which has gone to a completely electronic way of voting. You know, what people like ICICI Bank have done using technology, I've given many case studies in my book, they've transformed the way the common man gets access to banking because the poor can go to an ATM and withdraw money and there's no clerk and there's nobody who can come in the way. So I think technology has played a huge role not only in the exter external side but also domestically. Uh, uh, I'm very glad you brought up the election because towards the end of the book you focus on the big issues of the environment, healthcare, education. And for all this to continue, the, you, you need government buy-in to, to, to make these uh, goals succeed. Uh, based on that, what's your prediction about what's going to, there's an election coming up in April. Uh, who, what do you think is going to happen and will India move ahead or will India fall back? Well, I have no clue what will happen in the election, so. <laughs> you must be think, have some scenarios in mind. If, if uh, Congress wins A, BJP wins A, Mayawati becomes Prime Minister. Well, yeah. Even if I have scenarios, I don't think I'm going to talk about them in this forum. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. We'll but but I, think, I think the basic thing is that you obviously are going to see a continuing coalition and, and this confusing environment. And that's why, and my point is therefore, the only way to drive unity in this is to have a unity of ideas. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I call my book a safety net of ideas. So if we can get more people to buy into these basic ideas, it doesn't really matter what combination comes into power. But the, the infrastructure section of your book is also really interesting. And there the question I thought about was, uh, there's so much to despair about as far as infrastructure goes. But in telecommunications, infrastructure has worked extremely well. Are there any lessons from the telecommunications yeah. experience? I think, it, it, I think a couple of, I mean, telecom is a huge story. I mean, today we're talking about 8 million mobile phones a month. 
99% of the mobile phones are prepaid, which means they're being taken by people who don't have a credit history. And 40% of the prepaid charge is less than 10 rupees a pop, which is a phenomenal achievement of really creating a mass movement. I think part of it was, you know, the regulatory environment being uh, changed. I mean, there are some challenges there, but still, it, it is trying to create a playing field between both public and private money. And also, I think technology played a big role because, you right. know, you had a huge Moore's law kind of thing operating there. And, uh, uh, but I think there the are other sectors too where infrastructure, I mean, uh, airports are coming up. The Bangalore airport has come up. The Hyderabad airport has come up. Bombay and Delhi are getting redone. The highways, of course, it did slow down a bit, but there's been a lot of movement on highways. It's, I mean, I think the challenge we have, it's nowhere on the scale and scope of China, so we tend to compare. But I do see a lot of improvements in infrastructure. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask one last question and then turn it over to the, to the audience. Uh, since your book is Imagining India, what kind of an India would you imagine for your grandchildren and their children? Well, I think, you know, my, my point in this book is to say that India is at a strategic opportunity. Its combination of its demographics, its entrepreneurs, its, its technology prowess, its uh, democracy, the fact that the world is aging while we are young, uh, the fact that we have English as a language, all these are very unique attributes that there's no other country in the world which has those. And if we make the full use of that, I think it can become a role model for the 21st century because you're talking about a billion people reaching prosperity, reaching, uh, you know, living in a peaceful manner in a democracy, handling extraordinary diversity. I mean, the whole issue today of so-called clash of civilizations, India has a daily, you know, all those civilizations are all coexisting. So I think the ability to show this combination of development, diversity, democracy, will really make it a very, very successful country if you do it right. But it can also go the other way. Because the same demographic dividend, if you don't harness our people well, their aspirations have been unleashed. And as they become more disgruntled and disaffected by lack of jobs and lack of economic growth, they can also become a huge source of uh, violence and divisiveness. So we are on the razor's edge, whether we go this way or that way. Well, it's definitely a very compelling argument and you make it extremely well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.